Hey, Kate, it's Mom. Well, I was attending Tollgate High School in Warwick, Rhode Island, when Title IX became law in 1972. I had just finished my sophomore year. Growing up, I was a huge sports fan. Avid Boston Red Sox and Providence College Friars basketball because of my father. He, those were his teams and they became mine. And from an early age, I played baseball with the neighborhood boys and I was decent. I could hit, I could field. It was my sport until it couldn't be anymore. In high school, we had a, a small girls basketball team. It was the only girls sport I remember from high school. And although I loved basketball so much, I had never played it. I don't even remember a nearby court we could go to. And if I had wanted to learn at an early age, like I did kind of informally with baseball, the infrastructure just wasn't there. So I didn't really know how to play and had no confidence that I could be good and I would want to be good. The girls who were on the team were called jock ads. I'm kind of using air quotes. There was a little bit of innuendo to that. It wasn't horrible, but it was there. So I didn't want to be a jockette. I wanted to be a cheerleader to cheer on the freaking boys. And to make matters worse, I wasn't very good. I couldn't do splits and the toe jumps that you had to do in tryouts, so I didn't even make the important cheerleading squads, like football and basketball. I ended up clapping my hands in a hockey rink. So much fun. So then, of course, I dated a basketball player in college, Kate's dad, Chris. He knew how much I loved sports and actually encouraged me to try out for Colgate's women's lacrosse team. So, yeah, this is 1977, and women's sports were growing in college. I made the JV team because no one got cut. I didn't play much at all, but to this day, and I'm 67 years old, I remember the feeling of the one good pass I made to a teammate. And there were a few cheers on the sidelines. So I married that basketball player and traveled overseas to Holland and France as he played professionally. And I lived out my sports dreams vicariously through him. And then later, our two daughters. Kate and Ryan grew up in Schenectady, New York in the 90s, and they chose their sports early. They could. The support system was there. There were girls' high school teams in a variety of sports and AAU teams and other kind of training programs, especially for girls' basketball. Kate played baseball early on and then moved over to basketball when Chris took her everywhere with him. Ryan chose running and started in middle school. I just loved, we both loved, watching them blossom as they played and then when it got really serious in college. And there were times when I definitely was jealous of my own two daughters. Playing sports at a high level was just so difficult and yet they were learning those life lessons that, you know, we all talk about. Teamwork and perseverance and, you know, putting in all the hours that I kind of only gleaned and learned over the years. I didn't head out into the world having a good sense of self and confidence to go after what I wanted, I kind of let my life happen to me instead of the other way around. There are no two ways about it. So yeah, I regret that Title IX didn't happen earlier, but I'm just eternally grateful that my daughters got to benefit from it and really thrive. That's my, that's my take on Title IX. Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. Jess, that voice at the top of the show is a very familiar voice to me. Hmm, why is that? Hmm, that was my mom! 
Um, yes! So, my mom is doing the hard work of tying the entire theme of today's episode together. I mean, on one hand, it's in advance of Mother's Day, so uh-huh. it was nice to hear my mom's voice on this show. She's an avid listener, Jess. I know, and that's a tough get, too. I mean, I know you had booking. to go through several layers of PR to get her on. Well, it was actually more complicated than you think, because when I reached out to her, she was at Starbucks, and you can't mm. record when you're at Starbucks. No, so definitely not. She did say, give me a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually kind of professional, I want yeah, to tell you. Yeah, you both kind of operate the same way, right? You're the kind of worker who needs a deadline too. Yeah, if I don't have a deadline, I don't get anything done. So yeah, same. Apple tree. Yeah, so my mom, she's giving you the story of what it was like kind of to be a Title IX baby. And by that, I mean like you were essentially like yeah. at the birth of Title IX and not necessarily reaping the benefits. And on the show today, we have... Lauren Fleshman, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Good for a Girl, and she has really smart ideas about how women's sports has evolved in ways both limiting for women's sports, as well as ideas for changes we can make to ensure that the future of women's sports is healthy. So I'm excited to talk to her. Me too. And we're also going to hear from another familiar voice at the end of the episode, because we're only a couple weeks away from Anya Alvarez, producer of Off the Looking Glass trying to qualify for the U.S. Open. And she is, once again, finding a struggle with the amount of time commitment she's put into work and golf and all of those things. So stay tuned for that. We are rooting for Anya, and we're excited to see how she fares in a couple weeks. Plus, Jess, I'm excited to say, you shouldn't skip the ads. Never skip the ads. Our guest today was the U.S. 5,000-meter champion in 2006 and 2010. Tell me about that move you made 600 meters to catch Jen. Oh, God, that was just balls. All that was is balls. She competed as a professional in three world championships. And while at Stanford, she was a 15-time All-American and five-time NCAA champ. She is now a brand strategy advisor for Wazell. She is the co-founder of the energy bar company, Picky Bars. And in 2023, she wrote the New York Times bestseller, Good for a Girl. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on, Lauren Fleshman. Hey everyone, Kate here. I wanted to take a second before we get to Lauren, just to give you a quick heads up that in atypical off the looking glass fashion, we just dive right into some serious stuff here with Lauren about the female triad. She'll explain it. Don't worry. But just wanted to let you know that in her book, Good for a Girl, she talks a lot about a number of important issues in women's sports and specifically running about eating disorders, about how they affect the body, about puberty, and Jess and I are passionate about those topics, so we got right into it with Lauren, as you will hear now. All right, thanks, y'all. Can you, for our listeners who maybe don't think about this stuff, because it's definitely distinctly like a running term, but can you define for us the female athlete triad? Yeah. Um, It's when you have a mixture of an eating disorder, a missed period, 
So amenorrhea, where you've lost the period and osteoporosis. So it's like that trifecta of menstrual health, eating and bone health. And uh, that's kind of like the far end. So by the time you've gotten to the triad, you've already caused a whole bunch of damage in your body. But that when I was growing up, that was the first measuring tool that they gave us to say, hey, there's a problem here. But now we have this other term called REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport, that captures more of like the steps along the way to the triad when damage is being caused in the female body. Like what are some of those steps along the way? So like if you have menstrual dysfunction, but you haven't lost your period entirely, you're already causing problems to your immune system, your bone turnover rate goes down. So you're like breaking down bone faster than you're building it. You're more likely to get stress fractures and tendon injuries. Your libido goes down, your anxiety goes up, your pain tolerance goes down. And that's just from like disrupting the cycle. And so that would have been completely missed by the triad framework of old. And then similarly, like you can diagnose reds from like your injury rates. Like if you're just getting a lot of injuries and you don't know why, and it's like not biomechanical or something then you could diagnose it that way or through the mental health side of it. So there's multiple ways to get in and say, Hey, are you eating enough? Basically is what it comes down to. It's like, you can be just slightly under fueling for a long stretch of time and, and not have an eating disorder and you can have reds. Some of that is really common in college programs because you eat according to certain timelines. Like you get to have your meals at these times, but you may be expending a ton of energy and like, you know, this huge block in the morning and then you don't catch up on calories until the evening or even the next day. And it's just that slight under fueling over time that creates the hormonal disruptions. I think it was last year because we had Kara Goucher on the show about a year and a half ago. And that was right on the heels of the... DEXA scans that they were doing at the University mm. of Oregon. And then even when we talked to women's college basketball coaches, like Adia Barnes was on and she's the head coach at Arizona. She would not do that anymore, nor would it be okay within the athletic department. Yet on the running side, they were doing DEXA scans. So when you heard about the DEXA scans, when you think about what the role of weighing athletes is in college sports, what are your thoughts around that? Well, I just think it's completely ridiculous to create any sort of like measuring system in a developing body and adolescence lasts until your mid twenties. So we're supposed to continue changing. So it's kind of like pinching sensitive areas and measuring them or putting us in bod pods and like giving us some sort of scale that we should line up with that isn't actually based on our age group or what's physiologically appropriate. Like that Oregon thing was so ridiculous because they were comparing the body fat of 18 to 22 year old females with an Olympic study on 28 to 32 year old females. And it's a completely different stage of life. And I think just in general, like we have this culture where we look at a developing female body during adolescence that's supposed to be softer and puffier. Like when you look at the lifespan of your life, there's a, a period of our life where our estrogen levels are doing a certain thing, like we're optimized for fertility, whether we want to do it or not. But we look at those bodies and we, as a culture, think excellence should look leaner than that on average. And we push this idea of excellence that's based on a male body norm for that age. That's just not right. It's unrealistic. It's very difficult to achieve. It requires restricting and starving yourself to get it. So we just, we just need to stop doing that. What are some of the effects on it in terms of like the social aspects of it being on a team and competing in sports when this is happening around you? Oh, yeah. Well, it just increases your sense of vigilance about your body and it creates a fixation or like a, a negative self-image. It creates a lot of 
culture on the team of talking about weight, talking about bodies, the kinds of things that we know are more likely to generate eating disorders on a team and body dysmorphia on a team, the more you're talking about those things in a negative way. It takes up a lot of airspace when you could be talking about other things. And then once you have teammates who are struggling with food and body, that creates, I mean, for lack of a better term, like it can create a lot of team drama. It's very distracting. It's confusing. There's a lot of concern for your teammates, but you don't know what to do about it. And then then those people are living with very real health consequences, trying to get themselves out of a cycle that's hard to break. I think it was either in The Guardian or one of your NPR interviews where you were talking about how a sports bra should be part of a team-issued uniform, and also that we have no concept of how to talk about breast development at that age, because as soon as breasts happen, it's like, oh, that's about sex and attractiveness instead of if you're an athlete, like, let's look at Jess, do you want to chime in here? (laughs) I'm I'm laughing because like there's a point when you're I don't know, I don't speak for every young girl where like you're afraid to have boobs (laughs) because we're like taught to be ashamed of having them and like our bodies changing is like scary and you're afraid to even ask to like go buy a bra or a sports bra and not just be like, here, wear this. This is fine. <laughs> yeah, it's a very charged body change because of the culture we live in. That's, I think, the first body change where you are now viewed by straight men as like an adult. I mean, you hear like that's when the language starts changing about girls being called women or being viewed as women. I mean, and, and that's not something we ask for. It just starts happening. Then you need to move through the world with this awareness that you're being viewed that way at all times by some people. And then it just feels different to move in that body. And we know that it's like just biomechanically different. The physics are different. And so if we can't talk about it from that perspective, that non-sexualized, just like physical perspective, that would be really helpful for girls and just acknowledging the social aspects of it too. But like the study from the UK that showed just how little we're talking about breast education with young girls and how much they want to know It was like 73%, I think, wanted more information on breasts and exercise specifically. And half didn't own a sports bra. I mean, those those numbers are just like kind of shocking. I told Jess to watch Daisy Jones and the Six. I didn't tell her to order her around, but I suggested it as a good show. (laughs) Um, Have you watched it at all yet, Lauren? Is that the one about uh, that's kind of loosely based on Fleetwood Mac? Yeah. And it's based on a novel. It's like about a band. I read the novel. Yeah. Yeah, I read the novel. There's just this great line in it where Daisy Jones walks into the recording session and she's wearing short shorts and some of the other band members are like, whoo, she walks up to him and she's like, you know, it's not my job not to turn you on, right? You know, it's not my job to not turn you on, right? And then <laughs> and then the, the male character's like, I do now. I, I do now. Great. But it's like just <laughs> nice. like a perfect line that I think in women's sports, you're always battling like, What is the line between I'm a competing female athlete and I am here to also be a sex object? And it's starting to get like blurred again with NIL. We've talked about it on this show. But as you were going throughout your career, how much did you have to think about that line between I'm just here to compete and do my best. And also I'm here to also kind of look good, too, because that is important when it comes to sponsorships and everything else. Yeah, I definitely knew it mattered. And we had this shitty ass website called let's run.com that was like all the basement dwellers probably 99% men on their boys like posting about the sport and it had enormous influence on who got contracts and who didn't because all the people giving out contracts at the sports brand were men straight men presumably and white and so 
they would often banter these sports executives because I heard them doing it about the things said on the letstron.com boards. And these are anonymous posters. And what they would say about a female athlete, like if they were all attracted to a certain person and commented on their body a lot, like that athlete was more likely to get a bigger sponsorship deal. It was like a little indicator for sports marketing people. The whole point of the Olympics, the whole reason for this training, for this work to get there is product endorsements. Um, which is just so sad. Like who knows if it was like the same 14 guys posting this stuff, but right. they, they wielded enormous power. Why should I have to look at some chick's zits? <laughs> Why not a little blush on, the, on her lips and cover those zits? So I was aware of it. I'm a queer woman. I had conflicted feelings about being put into a gender specific feminine uniform about having to navigate the male gaze while doing my sport. And then on top of all that was just the exposing of a changing body and feeling like resentful that I needed to have my butt cheeks and inner thighs literally on display at all times <laughs> while my body was changing while I was navigating my own feelings about that, which was just a bummer to have that autonomy taken away from you to just say like, oh no, you're gonna be on display all year round, fall, winter and spring, congratulations. Yeah. I remember when I was running cross country in high school, I had my big mesh basketball shorts that I would, nice. uh, I'd always like, <laughs> as soon as the race was over, I was like, get, get me my big mesh basketball shorts, please. Because <laughs> it was just so confusing to me to come from basketball, which at that time, maybe to some people said to the detriment of basketball, like they hadn't made their uniforms, quote unquote, sexy. And it just felt so yeah. safe to me in a lot of ways. And then when I went to run, I was like, I felt unsafe at times in what I had to run in. Yeah, which is kind of strange. And I mean, I love that you had that freedom in basketball. That feel. I mean, you can have nice aesthetic design without playing up to turning on men. Yeah. <laughs> like they yeah. can be turned on if they want, but like we don't have to build it for their eyes. We should be building it for what makes us feel confident and and easeful in our body and unself conscious, so we can focus on destroying people in the game. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Last week, the Norwegian women's beach handball team fined nearly $2,000 for wearing shorts instead of regulation bikini bottoms. Some of the biggest stars, including Serena Williams and rising star Eugenie Bouchard, asked to spin around on the court and show off their outfits. This morning, Germany's women's gymnastics team making headlines after appearing in Sunday's competition wearing unitards with arm and ankle length coverings. The unitards set an example for all gymnasts who may feel uncomfortable or even sexualized in normal suits. Do you think that the lack of education on young girls changing bodies is something that's intentional? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think women in general are like neglected in research. I mean, I don't remember the exact number, but I saw some crazy study about the amount of studies on men's pain versus women's pain. Everyone just assumes women should experience a certain amount of pain. But if a man experiences pain, we like prioritize that there's a ton of money that goes into the research of the drugs to reduce it, eliminate it, the female birth control, when there's all these crazy negative side effects, like people just don't care. They're like, sure, clear it, boom prevents pregnancy, but then when it's a male birth control pill and it has the same side effects, we're like, shut it down. <laughs> right. There's bad experiences for men on this pill. <laughs> I just think it just hasn't been prioritized. We haven't been viewed as full humans yet, still to this day. Yeah. So when we are viewed as full human beings, I'm sure they'll study us more. So maybe the answer is like, it's not premeditated maliciousness. It's sort of apathy that has led to the same outcome is sort That's of- That's what I think. Yeah, yeah. I've been curious since reading the book. Let's start with like the actual process of what you had to learn about external from just your individual experience. 
What did you learn in writing this book that you didn't know before? Well, one thing was the history of Title IX was really fascinating to me, like learning where it fit into the second wave feminist movement. A lot of the arguments against Title IX that were, or not against Title IX, but against folding into a men's based system, like being incorporated into the NCAA. There were a lot of feminists who were like, hey, I'm a little worried about this. We should look at what men's sport is really offering before we just assume it's the best thing and that we should fight for exactly that. Like maybe we should maintain some power and control over our own spaces and create our own priorities and like avoid some of these paths. And they were right. Yeah. <laughs> like essentially when doing the studies for my book, a lot of these problems that are showing a difference in thriving between females and males is because we just fought for what they had the way they had it. And we viewed a positive income as getting exactly what they have. And we aren't critical of what they have or even critical of, is it best for them? Not to mention what's best for us. So I find there there's like full circle moment happening right now. Of like what ended up winning out at the time in the seventies was let's downplay our differences. Let's upplay that we're the same and that we want the same thing. And that was probably a good strategic move at the time. But now we're like, I think we're at this really exciting time where we can talk about difference more, whether it's for race or ability or gender. And we, we actually have to in order to have equitable spaces and experiences. But yeah, I kind of wanted to like go back in time and talk to some of those women who are like, let's maintain the our own women's organization in college sports. I have talked to some of those women and it's really fascinating when they saw the viral videos go around about the NCAA disparities in the NCAA tournaments during the bubble season, they're just sort of sitting there being like, yep, this is what happens when you let someone take over your sport and they don't have your best interests in mind. The thing that I've been struggling with is my own lack of imagination in imagining what a successful women's sports world could look like that doesn't just mirror men. When I'm envisioning a future, right, and we all talk about it like, Oh, let's say in 50 years, the WNBA, maybe we'll have a $10 million contract. I'm like, that's all I can imagine. Yeah. Like, I can't even envision an alternate path, right? Like, oh, women run women's sports and they actually prioritize, you know, <laughs> community and growth and whatever it may be. I'm like, I can't imagine it. I Well, I would love for us to think about the collective more in women's sports and just like, this is not going to be the most popular thing. But what if we just decided we wanted it to be less cutthroat? Like we wanted anyone who is playing to be able to genuinely thrive, even if that meant that there'd be fewer of us getting very rich, that all of us could be pretty rich (laughs) because there really is enough resources for that in sports like women's basketball and women's soccer. And I don't want to take away somebody's multi-million dollar contract. I get that that's something people want. Me personally, though, having done the research I've done, lived the life I've lived, like I would gladly give up the ability to make $10 million a year if I could create a league where everyone got parental leave and everybody had insurance and everybody made at least like six figures and could be able to buy a house and provide for a family. That would be great. And that's just not happening, especially in sports like track and field, where it really is dog eat dog. There is no league minimum. There is no union you know, it's feast or famine. And that makes it an especially toxic environment for trans inclusion or for a lot of these other conversations like people when they're put up against the wall and they feel really scarce. They're very protective over those limited resources and fighting each other over them to another level. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your vision of that league is sort of what I sometimes play out in my mind. I don't always say it out loud because it just feels so Pollyannish, you know? Yeah. When we talk about these things, people always say like, well, that's unrealistic. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's the problem is that we can't think about a universe where the goal and the measure of success isn't just making a shit ton of money. Uh, yeah, we don't know how. <laughs> yeah, with people are really attached to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's something that our top athletes are going to have to take into their own hands, really. And yeah. like, if you imagine like if the billionaires of the United States got together and were like, hey, shit's fucked up. Like, we should probably <laughs> figure out a way that like, it, it's really the people at the top that are going to have the most power to say, hey, I'm willing to give up a little something to create a better vision, a new vision for what our women's sports could look like. Like if you could just figure out a way to even redefine what success looks like, like be brave enough to say, hey, well, success for us doesn't look like growing 20x in two mm -hmm. years. Sustainable growth is sexy. Let's go for that. Let's like figure that out. So you, you can do it. You can redefine it. But I think that athletes are tough because we're all working so hard. We're scattered. They keep us really busy. Taking on an entirely different big project, like what women's soccer has done, like a big social change based side gig <laughs> that yes, helps them, but helps the whole rest of women's sport. Stuff like that is like, it's a whole other job. It's a lot to ask. Back to the writing of the book. What did you learn about yourself? I think just like how deep patriarchy is, was in me <laughs> and like how much I was living my life for the male gaze and having compassion for myself for doing it because I was grew up in this working class family. I was trying to gain social mobility. I was trying to gain financial freedom. Sport was this talent that I had and I was trying to survive in that system and thrive in that system. I learned really like how much my relationship with my dad was symbolic of all of that. So even when I felt like I had pulled out a lot of the roots from the larger society on those issues one by one, there was still my dad, that one big one that was still in there from the way I grew up and the kind of influence he had on how I saw the world, how I saw myself that could really only be removed after he died. You know, I love my dad, but yeah. I think I just, yeah, I was just really humbled by how much I had like bought in and been manipulated by the system myself. Yeah. I'm going to quote Glennon Doyle right now, but she talks about how you just get like rained down on whatever it is. Yeah. And even if you're paying attention every single day, if you take one day yeah. off, the next day it's built up. And there you are again, <laughs> thinking the same thoughts. There they are creeping back in. You share the anecdote in the book about when you didn't make the Olympics at the Olympic trials in the 5K, and then you reached out to Kara Goucher and asked her if she would be willing to give up her spot in the 5K. Was there ever a moment where you were like, this is so vulnerable, I'm not going to include this? Because I thought it was a really amazing anecdote to include. Can you take me through your thought yeah. process around that? Yeah, I mean, I felt all sorts of different ways over the course of my life about that ass. Because, it, you know, it, when I was the age that I was at the time, which I think was like 26, I was still at the age where I was like, well, if I would do something for someone else, 
then that's the right thing. They should do that for me versus like, oh, there's actually a totally different calculus in each person's head and they're making their decisions based on their own whatever. And so I was like, oh, well, this isn't weird because I wouldn't think it was weird if someone asked me to give up a spot. Doubling in the Olympics is pretty rare. Uh, or at least it was at the time. So I was like, is one event at the Olympics enough? Yeah, that would be for me. I wouldn't want to run two events. Uh, but then I felt very embarrassed with the way it turned out that I asked and was shut down so quickly and then had to process like the grief and loss for so many years. It took me a really long time to get over it because you just, you know, you run out of chances to try again. And I think I knew deep down in my heart that year that that was going to be my best shot. And that if I didn't go, that was probably going to be it. So, but then by the time I was writing the book, I thought it was really important to include it because it showed like the desperation. It showed just how much it mattered, how much was on the line and how vulnerable I was willing to be to try to like have that last grasp at making that dream come true. And to illustrate that we aren't really a team on Team USA. Like people people don't don't generally make decisions to help somebody else out. Like we are pitted against each other we are the message is get what you can while you can get it because it's a feast this year and it's a famine next year and that's important for people to understand okay so fun stuff maybe we'll see what song is like your go-to running song right now oh um probably tuvalu no one dies from love no one dies from love Okay, okay. Writing this down. Writing this down also. (laughs) So I once dated someone who ran a marathon or a half marathon, I want to say, on a treadmill listening to the same EDM song like on repeat for hours. And we broke up soon afterwards because I thought that was weird. But can you think of a song that you ever played so many times in a row on a run that you can't listen to anymore? No, (laughs) that's that's not a thing. I'm like, I usually like to be a person that hits shuffle or radio on a song that I like and then be surprised and delighted. Like that makes running more tolerable for me is having distraction, (laughs) whether it's in music or like conversation. I, Jess and Lauren, when I used to run on the treadmill, if I was doing like a timed 5K on the treadmill when I really cared about this stuff, the last song I would play would be Life is Beautiful by Vega 4. Because it's like five minutes long, so I could play it like it felt like, oh, the end is here, but there was still like more than half a mile left. And it sort of crescendos. And so I probably played that every single time I went for a run, which feels kind of like your boyfriend, but I didn't have it on repeat. Mm. Are you somebody, Lauren, who on the treadmill, do you have to hit up or down or can you just go for like 20 minutes at a time without touching things? Oh God, I hate the treadmill so much. I hate it. I hate it. But when I do it, yeah, I think I prefer to do an interval workout of some kind like you're talking about. So I'll put three minutes, I'll up the speed for three minutes, run at that pace and then put the pace slower than my normal pace for two minutes and then faster than my normal pace for three minutes. And I just, I'll be like, all right, I'm doing six of these. And then I'll listen to a podcast or do something else to distract myself or music. But I would run outside in a blizzard or just take Mm. the day off now before I'd run on a treadmill. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I have one in this room right here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like covered in extra bedding and pillows. Like, please don't make me use it. It's nice not having to perform anymore. Like, so if I want to go out and run in yak tracks or something in the snow or ice and I go really, really slowly, it just doesn't matter. Like, I'm getting fresh air. That feels way better. Or just go for a Nordic ski or something like that, do a different activity. 
All right, I think I gotta let both of you go. Although I feel like we need a part two. I have more questions I didn't ask. Um, okay, I'd love to. Okay, Let's do I've it. committed you. I've <laughs> committed you to another podcast. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you both. Hey everyone, before we play this ad, I just wanted to let you know that we felt like it was the perfect ad coming off of Lauren's interview because the premise is about how so many pieces of gear in the sports world are driven by what men believe they want in a piece of sports gear. So, without further ado, the ad. Women like to feel safe. Women like to feel powerful. Women like to strap their titties down when participating in physical activities. That's why one of the leading producers in men's tactical gear is making the first ever tactical sports bra. Tac bra! Sure, everyone has sports bras, but not like this. Tac bra is made out of Dyneema, a high-performance polythene tactical fabric that's lighter than water, 15 times stronger than steel, and can literally be worn while being run over by a Humvee. Run over by a Humvee. The tack bra comes equipped with two high-intensity, strobing flashlights to stun and disorient competitors. This high-performance wear also comes in silicone carbide, nano-kevlar, and metallic glass. It can withstand sub-zero temperatures and extreme heat, but should only be washed on gentle with light colors. Gentle with light color! Women are up to 400 times safer when competing in tack bra, and that's at any level. Tech Bra comes in four flattering and flirty Digicam prints, but only comes in one size. Only one size. Tech Bra gives you peace of mind so you can keep your head in the game. Tech Bra Tactical Sports Bra. It's a bra. Anya Alvarez here, producer of Off the Looking Glass. As I get ready to play in the U.S. Open qualifier next week, I realize I have to let go of a lot of expectations of myself and how well I want to play. When this was my actual livelihood, I hardly ever felt free on the golf course because I wanted so badly to win. If I hit a bad shot, it felt like a reflection of who I was as a person. And I'd say things to myself like, what's the point of practicing and working so hard if you're going to mess up? I didn't show myself any grace or kindness on the golf course. These old feelings of needing to be perfect on the course came up last week when I played. I felt myself starting to get agitated and having a feeling of panic that I wasn't going to play well. And it occurred to me that I really do care about how I play in this qualifier. My dad used to tell me when he was teaching me to play golf that golf is just a game. And I think I have a better grasp of that now because when I did start to feel down on myself during practice last week, I was able to reason with myself more and be like, Anya, At the end of the day, none of this matters. You're still going to be you, and how you play won't impact that. So just have fun. Make the most of it, and whatever happens, happens. So that's what I'm going to do. Go in with the mindset that this doesn't matter in the grand scheme of my whole life. But no matter what the outcome is, I can always take solace in the fact that 
I am better than 99% of the average golfers. And I'm also better than the men that think they can beat me just because I'm a woman. And honestly, that's almost enough for me. Well, 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 another fantastic episode of Off the Looking Glass. Before we go, Kate, I'm curious, when is a time that you've had to adjust your athletic expectations for yourself? Because I've experienced this recently as I've picked up pickleball. I think I should be better than I am because it appears to be a very easy game. And yet sometimes I frustrate myself with my actual output. Yeah, just I've lowered my athletic expectations. Every year I lower them. Um, Because I learned a few months ago that Catherine actually thinks that I have poor spatial awareness, which is oh, like obviously devastating to hear as a former basketball player. So not only have I completely abandoned any expectations of my athletic performance, I'm actually lowering my expectations of like, not falling. Not um, walking into shit. Yeah. yeah. So that's where Do I'm Do you at. drop stuff a lot? I don't drop stuff, but like I often will, when I turn and Catherine's mm. near me, will like kind of hit her. Inadvertently, obviously. And so I feel that as you age, your spatial awareness abilities are also decreasing. So maybe Anya is also experiencing that. I walk into corners a lot on countertops and things like that. Like I stub my toes a lot too. I actually saw there was a term for this on TikTok, but we'll get into that on a later episode. A tease. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. But I hear you. I think, though, that there are certain sports that as you get older, you do get better at. And I think pickleball is one of them. I think that I'll hit my pickleball prime in like 15 or 20 years. But right now, it's not for me. Just will you commit to being my teammate as we age in pickleball? Oh, absolutely. Also, Kate, I do want to say, I saw you make a jump shot a few weeks ago with a deflated basketball, kind of just playing around out of the blue, not really practicing. You just kind of like got a little basket there. Casually. After I bricked one. It was super casual. It was super mm. smooth. So I think you need to give yourself a teensy bit more credit yeah. about your expectations. You know what I can always do is I can always call my mom if I want my ego to be inflated. So that's what I'll do too. Either you or my mom, both yeah. of you are very good at building me up. So thanks, Jess. I'm just telling you the truth. Who should we thank for helping us make this episode of Off the Looking Glass? Well, let's actually start with Anya Alvarez, since she is is just a massive contributor, both producer, writer of Extra Extras, pursuer of Pebble Beaches on Off the Looking Glass. (laughs) Big thank you to Anya Alvarez. Big thank you to you, Jess, for co-hosting and producing the show. And big thank you to you, my fellow co-host and producer, and to Lauren Fleshman. We had such a great time talking to her. We talked for a really long time, and I hope listeners got out of it what I think we both did when we were finished with that interview. Thank you to Nameless Numberhead for producing Tactical Bra. Thank you also to Carl Scott for executive producing this show. And... Joel Shupak. Joel Shupak. Yes. For the sound design. All right. We'll see y'all at Pebble Beach. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.